everyone likes the story of an unlikely hero. It's closely related to its cousin, the underdog story, but with one, uh, one main difference. The underdog in a good underdog story is at least someone in that arena, like Rocky Balboa is a famous underdog, but he was at least a boxer, right? He just always seemed to be fighting someone. It seemed like he would have no chance to win. An unlikely hero is someone who just sort of happens to be in the right place at the right time and does something no, they were never planning to do. Uh, Oscar Schindler is a great real-life example of an unlikely hero. If you know his story made famous by the, the movie Schindler's List, Oscar Schindler uh, seems by all accounts to have been, he was a member of the Nazi party. He was completely uh, obsessed with just hedonism and just making money, which he continued to fail at, and, and womanizing, and just did not set out to save 1,200 Jews from extermination. But that's, that's what he wound up doing. He was just a very unlikely hero. And if, you, if you're not familiar with that uh, illustration, maybe this one, Poe from Kung Fu Panda. He was also a very unlikely hero. He wasn't a fighter but he was in the right place at the right time. Bilbo Baggins from The Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, he was small, he was weak. Somehow he became the unlikely hero. Well, this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 25, we're going to meet another unlikely hero. Her name's Abigail. She's an unlikely person to become a hero, and she becomes a hero in a very unlikely manner. We're going to read the, the Abigail story in chunks, but, we, but before we do, there's one verse we have to sort of deal with. It stands by itself. It's not part of the Abigail story. It's the death announcement of a previous hero in this book. So if you want to find um, 1 Samuel chapter 25, go ahead. We'll be in that all the rest of our time. But verse 1 is about the death of Samuel. The prophet Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. Then they buried him at his house in Ramah. And David went out and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And that's just, that's just the end of that story. So now we'll dive in. Verses 2 through the end of the chapter are all about Abigail, the unlikely hero. So we'll start in verse 2. And let's read this. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Parentheses. Now, the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite. Close parentheses. So it came about that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And we'll stop there. So in those verses, we meet a man from the far southern edge of Judah. And before we're ever told his name, we're told about his what? His possessions. And that's not by accident. Because this man's identity was wrapped up in his, in his money and his wealth, he ran some 4,000 head of sheep and goats. 
Um, so that tells us a lot about him, but his name does too. We may miss this because we're not native Hebrew readers. But the word Nebal, you might have a footnote in your Bible that mentions this. That's a word that means foolishness. So he is literally the fool. Uh, it can mean like intellectually foolish, like not the brightest bulb on the tree sort of a thing. But that's in the Bible, there's another kind of fool, like in the book of Proverbs. And it's someone who is sort of morally or ethically foolish. And that seems to fit this guy a little better. Apparently, his parents didn't like him very much because they named him uh, Foolish. Uh, we're also told that uh, he's married to a woman named Abigail. He's very contrasted by his wife because Abigail's just mentioned briefly uh, and she's called smart and beautiful or wise or intelligent and beautiful. We're supposed to see the picture of this contrast. Abigail, we will see, she has the kind of beauty that's not merely from outward appearance but that comes from her discernment, her wisdom. And she's contrasted by her husband, who is, some of our translations say, mean and surly. So somehow, he, and he looks it, right? He looks eaten up by bitterness and scorn and anger. So somehow, mean and surly managed to get himself married to smart and beautiful. Go figure. Go figure. We're also, the last thing we're told here is this is a Calebite family. The original audience would have understood right away, oh, that makes Nabal and this whole family. They're Jews or members of the tribe of Judah like, like David. Caleb, the hero, hero of Joshua's day, was, a, was from the tribe of, of Judah. So it's not that David is like closely related in the way we think of it to Nabal, but they are members of the same, same tribe within the larger people group or nation. So that's, that's who we've met so far. David's going to come to Nabal with a request that we begin to read about in verse 5. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. So tell him David sent you. And here's what you should say. Have a long life. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. Verse 7. Now I've heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they'll tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal all of these words, and then they waited to see what he would say. Okay, in those verses, verse 5 through 9, David asks Nabal for food for his men. David's got about 400 men. They may have some of their families with them. And he asks for food. Now we're very sensitive, and for good reason. We're very sensitive to folks that, have, that try to figure out how to sort of get by with someone else paying the bills, right? We're very sensitive to anything that feels like freeloading. And I want you to know that's not at all what's going on 
here. The, the original audience, that would have not crossed their mind from what they've read. This is why what David, David asking for food here, uh, he's not asking for a handout. Here's why. First, in the ancient world, actually until extremely modern times, very recently from a historical perspective, armies in the field, they subsisted based on whatever they could take from farms and, and stores around them. That's just the way armies worked. David is the leader of an army. He would have been seen by everyone as just entitled to take what it, what it took to feed him and his men. We're told in this passage, and some of the stuff I'll share now will come later, but you will see it. We're told David never took anything from Nabal and his 4,000 head. But more than that, he went above and beyond that. They just became impromptu protectors of Nabal's flocks. Um, We'll be told they didn't lose a single head during this season, uh, this grazing season, which would have been about six months, which would be remarkable for, for, for flocks in that time period. They lost stuff from wild animals, and they lost stuff from, from raiders. It's been a couple of chapters, but you remember the story about David going to save some people at a walled city um, a couple chapters ago? Uh, he decided, God, should I go in there and save those folks from the Philistines? God said, yeah, go do that. Why, why, why were the Philistines attacking that city? Do you remember? They were stealing their agricultural stuff. It's what the Philistines did. It's what the Amalekites did. There were all of these little people groups that they really weren't farmers and ranchers so much as they were pirates. They just robbed, stole from people who were farmers and ranchers. That's the way they fed their families. And during this season, we'll be told, one of, one of Nabal's men will say, while we were out there in the fields, David's men just spread out like a wall around us. And we didn't lose anything, a wild animal, a raider, nobody. So David has been, an, been a huge benefit to Nabal. Now, he wasn't hired to do that. He went above and beyond, but he also didn't take what everyone would have assumed uh, was okay and expected for him to take. Um, and then there's one more thing I want to say about that. And if anyone has any ideas right now, this would be the time to remind me. Uh, oh, and then this is a very special time of, of year. Shearing time is when our story picks up there at shearing time. This is, it's the time where the sheep and the goats get a haircut, right? But it's more than that. It's a very special time. That's like harvest. The main commodity was not meat or even milk. The main commodity was the wool and the fleece. So this is harvest. And also, this is, there's only two times a year. Shearing was twice a year. There's only twice a year that everyone in Nabal's huge household uh, and workers, that they would have all been together. Shearing time, once every six months, you got to be with everybody together. And that's why there was feasting. All of the animals are in the same spot. So you've, this is one of the few times a year people ate meat. Uh, the milk is all there. They've just had a, a harvest, which was a massively good harvest because of David. 
And so they're going to butcher and they're going to cook. And this is going to be a great time. And so David sends these messengers and says, I have never taken anything, though we know I could have, and that would have been okay. I've never taken anything and I'm not going to start now. But I would ask that you consider what you might give. He asks, you notice at the end, he asks just for uh, an unspecified free will offering. During this time of plenty, when Nabal has more than they could possibly eat, and one reason he had they have so much is because of David. So that's David's request. Now we'll get to Nabal's response in verse 10. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. I'm going to stop right there. So Nabal says no to David's request. But he doesn't just say no. This is a very extra no. It's a very hard of hard passes. What he says is, David, never heard of him. He calls David a nobody. He's heard of David. He knows he's the son of Jesse. He calls David a nobody. It's like giving something to him would be beneath me. Uh, And then he says, you know, kids these days, this is what's wrong with Israel right here. People don't know who their betters are. There are, there are many servants who just break away from their masters. What he's saying, he knows the history. He know, not only knows David, he knows the whole history between King Saul and David. And he says, David is this nobody uh, who is a no good ingrate who has ran away from his real master, Saul. And then listen to the pride and self-focus in this part of his no. Verse 11, shall I then take my bread and my water? That's especially hilarious to me. My water. Did you make that? You know, is that that's your water, is it? Uh, my meat that I have slaughtered for my shear. Should I take all that and give it to these men? I don't even know what hole they crawled out of. So David's young men retraced their way and went back and they told David everything that Nabal said. Now, how is David going to respond to that? Verse 13, David said to his men, count how many times the word sword is mentioned here. Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword and David girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. I'll translate that for you. Hey, how'd it go? Uh, And they tell David everything that Nabal said, which is very insulting. And David said, lock and load, boys. Right? Regulators mount up. Right? Go tell them David's coming and I'm bringing hell with me. I'm out of 80s movies quotes, but uh, you get the idea. All of a sudden... Nabal has a problem, doesn't he? It's like Nabal doesn't realize who he's dealing with. And David has decided he's going to go show him. So Nabal suddenly has a problem. Everybody agree with that? It's not the main problem in this story. Nabal's not the guy with the problem. 
He is a guy with a problem, but he's not the guy with the problem. Because the main problem in this story is inside of David. David suddenly has a real problem, and he doesn't see it any more than Nabal sees his problem. It's been a couple of weeks for us since we studied the previous chapter, and some of you weren't here at all when we did, and that's okay. But we're in a three-chapter section of this book where David is fighting against an enemy that lives right in here. He's fighting against his own anger, the temptation to seek his own vengeance. The previous story David was the hero of. The previous story... David and his men were hiding from King Saul because King Saul is constantly hunting David to try to kill King David. They're hiding out in this cave and lo and behold, King Saul wanders by and he's looking for a private place to use the litter box, if you remember that story. And he just happens, King Saul happens to pick the cave where David and his men are hiding out. And David's men are like, this is your chance. You can kill King Saul even because he, like, he's been trying to kill you. And David refused. Do you know why? Because David saw his real problem and his real enemy clearly. And in, in his own words in the previous chapter, David said this to Saul when Saul was like, I can't believe you didn't kill me. I would have killed you. But D- David said, No, the Lord is going to judge between you and me, Saul. May the Lord take vengeance on you for me instead of me. But my hand shall not be against you. When David is right, here's what David does. He he sees, he knows the list of wrongs with which Saul has wronged him. David's not controlled by the list of wrongs with which Saul has wronged him. David's like, yeah, I know everything Saul has done to me is wrong. But I am controlled by a heart that pursues after the heart of God. I'm not controlled by the mean and terrible things Saul has done. And then David's so confident that God's justice is sure to come and it will be perfect. And he knows I don't have to seek my own justice. I'm not better at it than God is. And God's going to judge me someday too. Why would I do something wrong against Saul when then I'll have to stand before God and answer for that? Why don't I just let God be the judge? Right? So he can call Saul out on his sin. He doesn't have to call stuff that, that is sin, not sin. But he does not have to strike out in his own vengeance. That's how David won this previous battle against his internal enemy. But today, he loses it. You can hear him sharpening his sword as you read this story. Maybe it's easier when he's dealing with the king to remember, wait a minute, that's God's guy. But let some commoner speak sideways to me. And I'll show him. All right, the curtain closes. That's act one of our story. The curtain opens back up. Act two begins when an unnamed, an anonymous servant runs to Abigail, Nabal's wife. And we read this, verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, 
David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master Nabal, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us. We were never insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. Verse 16. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, no one consider, Abigail, what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Tell us how you really feel there at the end. So this unnamed servant runs to Abigail and says, ma'am, I've got to tell you what happened. Your husband just insulted David, like the David, giant killing, greatest warrior our nation's ever known, David, that guy. He insulted the heck out of him. Now you better figure out what to do before David gets here and starts killing people like me. And he says, and the reason I'm telling you is because you and I both know it would do no good for me and go talk, talk to, to Nabal because that dude's worthless. That's what he says. Abigail, how is she going to respond? We'll continue in verse 18. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys and cheesecake for dessert, I think. Verse 19, she said to her young men, you go on before me, behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down uh, by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her and so her. And that's the way she came to meet them. In verses 18 through 20 there, Abigail does something incredibly risky. She goes behind her husband's back and does the exact thing he extremely strongly said wasn't going to happen. She loads a whole bunch of groceries up on donkeys and has them delivered to where David is. It's like Donkey Dash. I think there's an app for that. And she goes to meet David on the road, hoping the groceries that he asked for, asked to be considered, would meet him before he gets to Nabal's home place. Now, Yesterday at a wedding in our family, we talked a little bit about the idea of biblical submission. This is actually a good look at biblical submission. Even though, here's a wife who did not do what her husband said should be done. Because, ultimately, we submit first and foremost to our God. And any time an earthly authority says something should be done and God says the opposite. We have to submit first and foremost to our God. In fact, we can be disobedient while also being submissive. She is disobedient, but she's going to come back later and tell him exactly what happened. And we'll get to that in a second. Okay, there's her plan. It is a good thing she put it into motion because next we're going to learn what we've assumed all along what David was planning. When David saw her coming, we read this. Now David had said previously, 
Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belongs to Nabal. David is going to go and kill all them dudes. But Abigail met him first. When Abigail meets David, here's some Bible trivia for you. What's going to happen next is Abigail is going to launch into what is the longest speech delivered by a woman recorded in the Old Testament. The, the longest speech in the Old Testament by a woman, it's not Rebecca or Sarah or Esther or Ruth, it's Abigail. So let's read that. Speaking to David, beginning in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey, and she fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to what I have to say. Verse 25. Please do not let my Lord David pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. I would have done something. Now, therefore, David, as God lives, and as your soul lives, and since God has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against you be like Nabal. Verse 27, now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to you be given to the young men who accompany you. Please forgive the transgression of me, for the Lord will certainly make for you, David, an enduring house, because, David, you are fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all of your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then your life shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, God will sling out as far from the hollow of a sling. As, or excuse me, as from the hollow of a sling. Verse 30. And when God does for you according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and he appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to you, David. This incident that you're considering won't bother you. Both by having shed blood without cause and, and by you having avenged yourself. When the Lord deals well with you, David, then, then remember your maidservant. There's Abigail's speech. When Abigail heads out there on the road, on her donkey, she knows... She's going to meet David who is getting ready to do something right or do something wrong. To do something very wrong, evil. So she goes out there and she knows she is right and David is wrong. Which is why she charges out there on her trusty little steed. Right? She sees David coming. She dismounts. She gets off on that road. She points her finger at David and says, Who do you think you are coming down here with that sharpened sword? You wait. You just go ahead and do that. You see what God will do to you. How can anybody be, 
Oh, wait a minute. She doesn't do anything like that, does she? Because Abigail is wise. It was time for Abigail to do something very courageous and stand up for what is right. But again, there's a way to stand up for what is right that is way more about the person who is standing up than it is about the God who is always right or the person who is in the wrong. There's a way to stand up for what is right that is much more about understanding I'm on the moral high ground. I am above the person here who is wrong and I want to make sure that discrepancy is what is illustrated here. My rightness, your wrongness. There's a way to stand up for what it's right that's way more about me saying the things that I want to say is going to make me feel so good. And then when I go back and talk to other people who already agree with me, oh man, we're really going to have a good time talking about this. That is a way to stand up for what it's right. It's just terribly ineffective. And when I do that, it's way more about me than it is about God or the heart of the person I went to confront in the first place. There's another way to stand up for what is right that is actually focused on the repentance from the heart of the person who's confronted. And Abigail becomes a great model of a biblical confrontation. Oh, I backed up too far, didn't I? There we go. Abigail goes out. She's extremely humbled, self-effacing. She gets off of her donkey and gets herself physically as low as she can. This is the opposite of assuming the moral high ground. She bows, but she doesn't just bow physically. She lowers herself. Who's wronger, Abigail or David? David. But she lowers herself physically, but also like emotionally and and intellectually. And she says, she tries to share the blame. uh, On me alone, my Lord David, be the blame. I am the person who's wrong here. And she says, honestly, what's she done wrong? She's thought about it. How could I have kept this situation from getting like this? We're in a huge mess. On the way out there, instead of rehearsing what she's going to say to David, right? She's thinking about what could I have done to keep this from getting like this? And she goes, I know. She gets out there and she's like, David, you got to understand, I know my husband is a real jerk. And if I'm honest, it makes me avoid that guy. I try to be around him as little as possible. But had I been beside my husband like I should have, I would have heard this request when it was given and I could have kept this from ever getting to this point. So let me share the blame in this. And then she constantly, very gently, she, she just tries to push David, his focus away from the list. What Nabal did, how it made you feel, Ignore Nabal. Put your focus on me and the Lord. She tries to get... uh, she, She does confront David with his wrong, though, but it's very gently. 
right? There's no, man, only an idiot would be preparing to do what you're about to do. Even, you know what? That's true. It's true. She says, starting in verse 26, several times, she praises God that God has kept you, David, from shedding innocent blood and avenging yourself by your own. I am so thankful, David, that God has kept you from killing a bunch of uh, innocent folks. You know what? God hasn't kept David from killing a bunch of innocent folks yet. The truth is, David needs to keep David from killing a bunch of innocent folks. Sometimes, sometimes you ever feel like that? How come God didn't keep me from... Sometimes God sends people. Sometimes, but David's going to be responsible for what David does. So Abigail, this is how gently she tries to get him to see this. I am so thankful to our God who loves us so much. He allowed me to catch you before you did something you were really, really going to regret. Only she doesn't say it that directly. God is so good. God is doing something here, David. God is going to keep you from doing something. He's going to use me to keep you from doing something that ultimately you're really going to regret. She says, um, she tries to get David to, to focus on God's promises to David. Over and over, she says things that basically mean this. David, you could never improve upon the promises God already has for you. What God has in store for you is better than anything you can go get outside of the bounds of what he would say is best. She says, um, where's the sling part? I changed the, uh, where the, uh, verse 29. Should anyone rise up, any enemy, and pursue you to seek your life, then the life of David shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord. But the lives of your enemies, God will sling out like he's slinging a rock out of the hollow of a sling. Do you think Abigail's trying to remind David of anything by using that particular metaphor at that time? Wouldn't it be just easier to say, when somebody tries to attack you, God's going to throw them away? She uses the metaphor of a stone in a sling, not by accident. What's she trying to remind David of? David, you haven't gotten where you are in life by using your own anger to defeat your own enemies. You have gotten where you are in life and you're going to get all the great things you've been promised. Simply, you fight the Lord's battles. God's blessings and promises for you are so awesome. That's where your protection is. That's where your offense is. That's where your defense is. You fight the Lord's battles. Don't be that guy who suddenly wants to step outside of God's protection and fight your own battles using enemies you shouldn't even have picked up. Or excuse me, using weapons you shouldn't even have picked up. We can't fight God's battles using the enemy's weapons. It will never work. It only leads to regret, ultimately. And she, she just ends very gently by just pointing David. Just look, focus on the promises God has for you. 
in the future. Boy, is that applicable for us? When I get good and steamy, fiery, mad, maybe I ought to focus on the promises God has for me. I cannot improve upon the promises and the hopes that God has guaranteed me. The only thing I can do when I step outside the bounds of what he would say is appropriate in this conflict is heap regret on myself on that day when I get to God's promises. That's what Abigail does with David. You can't improve upon God's promises, certainly not through your own vengeance and anger. David responds in verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. David gets it. Verse 34, Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, if you hadn't come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. And so that's how David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and I've granted your request. David responds in a way that lets us know the light bulb went on. David like looks down at his sword and goes, Holy smokes, I just, about turned in, I just about turned into King Saul. King Saul is the one who tries to destroy anyone who offends him. That's not David. David's like, I just picture him just like dropping that sword and going, oh man, what was I about to do? That's not who I want to be. I'm the one who pursues after God's own heart. David praises Abigail. He thanks God. He says, you know what? I can tell God sent you. I'll let you in on a little secret. It's a lot easier sometimes to admit that God is right and I am wrong than it is to admit I am wrong and you are right. Another person, right? David's response here, like even when David's wrong, he winds up being right. Because how he responds to being confronted with his wrong is so awesome. He just softens and says, you are right. Thank you for having the courage to do what God wanted you to do in this matter. I know he sent you. And he just praises her and praises her. And so Abigail is an unlikely hero. She helped David defeat the enemy David didn't even know was in there. The aftermath of the chapter starts in verse 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. Did, did Nabal have enough to be able to spare some for David? See, he's pictured as just a gluttonous, drunken pig. And he didn't have near enough to share with the man who had helped him have so much. Verse 37, but in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. 
When David heard that Nabal was dead, David said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is as a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David had also taken an Ahinoam, nailed it, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. Now Saul had given Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife, to another man who was from Galim. Okay, in the aftermath, David runs home, excuse me, Abigail runs home to tell her husband what had happened, only he's too drunk to talk, so she waits till the morning. In the morning, she informs him how close he came to being at ground zero of a nuclear David attack, and he has some sort of health event that he became as a stone. He had some sort of stroke, some sort of something left him unresponsive, comatose, something. He held on for 10 days, and he died, and we're told plainly, God did that to him. God will not always deal as quickly with evil, but he will always deal as surely with evil. In this story, David's like, see, I did not need to avenge myself. God's got it. And that's always true whether the evil people are struck dead and become like a rock or they wait until later because nobody's going to get away with anything. Either all of their wrong will have been poured out on our Savior or it's still waiting for them when they stand before the Lord. Who do you think will be better at meeting out justice, you or God? At the end, we do learn, David acts as a kinsman redeemer. There's a bit of a leveret marriage thing here. Um, I won't explain that, that whole deal, but basically in the ancient world, this idea, if I had died before I had heirs, before I had children, uh, a close relative would have been legally required to marry Rachel and have a child, but that child would have been my heir instead of that relative's heir. So he would inherit old blue instead of, right? It was basically an anti-treachery law, right? It would do me no good to kill my oldest brother to get all of his stuff when I wouldn't get his stuff. I could kill my older brother. I would have had to marry his wife, make an heir that would be his heir, and that heir would get all his stuff. So why would I go through the trouble of killing him? David does that here. Here's how we know that this child, uh, or this, this couple has a child. His name's Chiliab, by the way. Uh, and he's never listed in the list of David's heirs. Because he's not. He's the fool's heir. He's Nabal's heir. But don't feel too bad for him. He inherited 4,000 head of sheep and goats. So he was, he was doing okay. I'll also mention, David was a polygamist. Over and over in the Old Testament, men of wealth and influence 
We see this and the narrator never breaks in and says, that's wrong. God says, don't do that. But you know what? That's wrong. God says, don't do that. There, we covered it. Um, it always causes tremendous heartache and trouble. And Jesus told us plainly, it is not God's design. In the beginning, God created the male and female, put them together and said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's the ideal. That's the ideal. But it does happen. All right, that's, that's the story of how Abigail became an unlikely hero. What do we learn? First, from this passage, I think we learn it may be a hidden lesson in there, but it's in there. God is more interested in our ultimate good than we are. Do you believe that? It's really easy to believe like believe that's not true. No, 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 no. If I do things the way the Bible says, I'll be losing out. I'll be missing out. People won't like me. I will never get married. I will fill in your blank, right? God's the one holding out on me. Listen, God is more interested in your ultimate good than you are. He knows the end from the beginning. David didn't get what he wanted in this story, did he? You know what he wanted to do? He wanted to go wreck shop. Right? He didn't get what he wanted. And you know what? It was better. He got way better than what his heart was telling him he needed. God is always more interested in our ultimate good even than we are. That's why we have to defer to him because daddy knows best. Second, we need to remember that we are capable of great inconsistency. And God can use anyone to remind us of that. I shouldn't have separated these two, these two chapters by two weeks. But if you were reading the cave story with King Saul and this story, like at the same sitting, you could not miss how, da- how different David is from one story to the next. If David is capable of inconsistency, hypocrisy, being way different today than I was yesterday, do you think maybe you and I are capable of some inconsistency? So why do we never admit when we're wrong? Like when I ask you like that, oh, sure, I'm capable of vast inconsistency. When's the last time you told someone that? Sometimes just giving yourself the permission to like, oh, hey, I'm going to be wrong sometimes. It's the easy way to live through life. Let my heart tell me what I want, tell me what I need, and then argue with everyone how I'm right because it's me that did it. We're capable of inconsistency and being wrong. If the heroes of our faith like David are, should we expect to bat a thousand? Sometimes just admitting is half that battle. I'm going to be wrong. Maybe I should pay attention for times when that's true. Third, when we must confront, and sometimes we must So when we must confront, we should confront with the other person's repentant heart as the goal, which takes me lowering myself to their level in a way where they know I am after your best, 
more than I'm after hearing you admit that I'm right and they're wrong. I, I am after your heart pursuing the Lord. And I want to help with that. Then number four, this one's wordy, but it's the best I could do. Our response when we are confronted, I think is a better measure of how fervently our heart is pursuing God than is our willingness to fight for some good thing that our heart just sort of naturally agrees with. I'm going to read that again and then explain it. Our response when confronted is a better measure of how fervently our heart pursues God than is our willingness to fight for some good that our heart naturally agrees with. There's plenty of evil out in the world and it is really easy to get online, to be at the coffee shop, to be at Quick Stop, which is the same thing in our town, to be wherever, right? And really get on that soapbox and we can fight against the evils in our world, right? That we naturally agree with. It's really easy to, there's plenty that's wrong out there. Does that mean I'm pursuing God? Or does that mean I'm pursuing stuff my heart just sort of naturally already agrees with? Maybe a better barometer of how my heart's doing are those days when somebody has the courage to come and confront me with my wrong. How do I respond then? See, Abigail was the hero of the story, but boy, David quickly becomes one. Because when he is confronted while he's holding a sword. Hey, I'm the anointed king. Who are you to tell me? He just softens, looks at himself, looks at his sword. I'm capable of inconsistency too. Thank you for for pointing that out. I want to praise you and praise God for sending you. That's the man after God's own heart who repents when confronted. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the example of David, both the negative and the positive. Um, it's comforting us for it's comforting to us to see um, the heroes of the faith blow it once in a while. God help us to give ourselves uh, permission to look for those areas where we blow it to. Help us to be courageous confronters when our brothers and sisters need that. And help us to be gracious when it is our turn to be confronted with the wrong. God, thank you that you have our best in mind even more than we do. Help us to pursue your heart more than we pursue ours. For our hearts will lie to us but yours never will. We love you, Lord. Imprint this on our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's finish.